Andrew had mentioned that Psalm 46 was the inspiration for Martin Luther writing that great old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which at the time, because of the Reformation that was taking place, they were seeking to change the Catholic Church from the inside out. Of course, eventually they had to break away. His major concern or primary concern was the uh, grace of God as opposed to salvation by works. And in that process, he was actually persecuted and hunted, and he had to go into hiding. He was found a lord or a man who was high up as far as being able to protect him in one of his castles. There are about seven documented uh, stories uh, or theories behind the circumstances that prompted Luther to write that hymn. This seems to be the most valid, the one I'm sharing with you, seems to be the most valid reason of the circumstances why he wrote this hymn. He was in seclusion. In basically in seclusion, he, the message had come to him that one of his colleagues had been caught and arrested and burned at the stake. And Luther felt guilty even depressed that he hadn't been caught, but his colleague and his friend had, which prompted him then from Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. So, Psalm 46. If you look at your Bible, there is an inscription that leads into this psalm. That inscription is not inspired. That inscription was added by Jewish leaders even before the time of Christ. So that says, To the chief musician, Psalm of the Sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth. And I looked at it and I thought, well, what does that mean? I mean, I know it's been added there by the Jewish leaders before the time, even the time of Christ, but why is that? And you'll find several psalms that way. Some of them, several psalms have a different inscription. And uh, this just happens to be the one for this. Well, who's the chief musician? It seems to be, or appears to be at least, a person. It may be the primary song leader. It may be the, the primary musician or instrumentalist. But it appears to be a designated person who is in charge of getting this all organized to actually be sung. The Sons of Korah, that's a little more interesting as far as the background goes for them. Some of you may remember this story found there in Numbers chapter 16, and then also in chapter 26. Levi, the tribe of Levi, who became the priestly tribe, Levi had three sons. One of those sons was Korhath. He's the grandfather. He's the, he's the patriarch of the sons of Korah. Only the sons of Aaron and Moses could serve in the priestly responsibility. The sons of Korah could not do that, but their specific responsibility had to do with the pertaining to the tabernacle itself, specifically the different articles of the tabernacle. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the shining candlesticks, the veil that hung between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. They were responsible for the preparation for traveling 
and for preparation for replacing them and putting them into place. These were the sons of Korah. They had a specific responsibility. Then in Numbers 26, they were led by a man by the name of Korah, who was the grandson of Korhath. Korah got together with some Reubenites, and they rebelled. It was basically, the, the essence of the rebellion was simply this. We don't think it's right that only the sons of Aaron and Moses can serve in the priestly duties. We want to be able to do that too. We're tired of carrying around the articles of the tabernacle. We want to be involved in the other aspects of it. Well, there's 250 of them. Well, basically, they separated themselves out and came with a raised fist uh, before Moses, and God spoke to Moses. Moses, in essence, said, I'm summarizing this, if their message, their rebellion is justified, nothing's going to happen. But if their rebellion is not justified, in other words, if their complaint is true, the earth is going to open up, swallow them up, and kill them. Well, he no more had said that than basically the earth opened up and they were all 250 of them died. But God wasn't done with them yet. God did not held, hold the sons of Korah responsible for the sins of the father. And as those sons grew up, and of course as David became ruled, this is many years later, the Korites are recognized as expert warriors. They were incredible in, in the instrumentation and, and the support and help for David. And apparently they were also great musicians. As David took them and divided them into choral and orchestration of music, and you'll find that there's about 25 psalms that are assigned to the sons of Korah. This just happens to be one of those psalms assigned to the sons of Korah. Those psalms express gratitude, humility, praise, thankfulness, and recognition of God's mercy and grace. You will find those things within this psalm. So to the chief musician, the sons of Korah, the song of Alamoth, literally that means maidens or soprano voices. It appears that these uh, were sung at high notes, I guess, I, I'm not even sure because it seemed a little nebulous exactly what that meant. But it appears that the, the vocal, it was an emphasis on the vocal part of it or the musicians at playing at a, a high uh, pitch. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, as you look throughout the psalm, one other characteristic, you see it three times, and it's easy to divide the psalm and then into three pieces, is selah, which means pause, rest, meditate, prayer. For the musicians, it's to pause, help them get their breath. For the audience, as we listen, it's an opportunity for us to meditate upon it and possibly even go to Lord in prayer concerning what had been presented. So this is Psalm 46. The title of the psalm is an expression, I believe, of a holy confidence. Holy is reference to the the, it's it's, it's is reference to God. It's, it's a divine source. In other words, you can have confidence, but this psalm is talking about a holy confidence, that God is the source of this confidence. 
And confidence is a trust. It's an assurance. It's a dependence. So I have a holy confidence. My assurance and my trust is in God because of who he is, not just because of what he does, but many times we recognize who he is because of what he does. So I have a holy confidence. This is a song of holy confidence. The question I'm going to try to answer is, why can I have, why can I have holy confidence? You could state it different ways, but that's, I believe it comes down to that. Why can I have a holy confidence? So we look at the first three verses. By recognizing God's, by recognizing God's protection. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Just three things I want to draw out, draw out of this. He is our refuge. He's impregnable. Refuge is two words can help to summarize this, shelter and safety. He's our high tower, depending on if you look at other versions. He's our high tower. He's our high ground. It's reinforced in verse 7 and 11, as you'll see again, the God of Jacob is our refuge. This would have been easily recognizable by the children of Israel, the audience. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. When God gave instructions to Moses and later to Joshua, when they divided up the land among the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi did not get a portion. They did not have a segment or section of land. Rather, they were to be distributed among Israel, among the land. They were given 48 cities. The, the thought was if they could integrate the Levites throughout the country, they would be able to continue to teach and explain and emphasize on the word of God being a part of their life, their everyday life, their always living life, as opposed to, oh, we've got to go to Jerusalem to worship. Oh, we have to go to Jerusalem to get the word of God. No, it was, it was among them. It was in them. Of those 48 cities, six were specifically designated as cities of refuge. And what would happen, three were on the east side of the Jordan River, and three were on the west side of the Jordan River. They were, they were supposedly situated in such a way that you could get there within 24 hours. That was, that was the plan or less than 24 hours, get to one of the cities of refuge. The Mosaic Law stated that anyone who committed a murder was to be put to death. That's in Exodus chapter 21. But for unintentional deaths, God set aside these cities to which the murderer could flee for refuge. He would be safe from the avenger, the family member charged with avenging the victim's death, until the case could go to trial. The congregation would judge the congregation would judge to find if the attacker acted unintentionally. If he did, he would return to the city of refuge and live there safely until the death of the high priest who was in office at the time of the trial, at which point he could return to his property. If the attacker left the city of refuge before the death of the high priest, however, the avenger would have the right to kill him. This was the city of refuge, safety and shelter. So he is, by recognizing his, God's protection, he is our refuge. Also, you look at verse 1, he is our strength. God is our refuge and strength. Strength has to do to resist the force, to be able to, to, be able 
to hold heavy weights without bending, without breaking. See, he is our refuge. He is our strength. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Refuge, strength. We are protected by an impregnable force. He is our refuge. He is our strength. It's not only impregnable, it's also immutable. You can't change it. And third thing we see there in verse 1, he is our help. See, by recognizing God, God's protection, he is our refuge, he is our strength, he is our help. And notice here, it's immediate. A very present help in trouble. Present. Closer than trouble itself. Trouble has to do with boiling over, physical danger, personal fears, ailments, anxieties. God is real and sympathetic to our needs. God is everywhere present at the same time. That's both a warning and a deterrent, I hope. He's neither limited by space or time, but is present and at every point of space with his whole being. God is present right now. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our help. Evil may ferment. Wrath may boil over. Pride may foam. But the brave heart of holy confidence will not fear. If it were possible to put creation in reverse, he could do it if he wanted to. Faced with hurricanes and earthquakes and catastrophes, he protects us. During an earthquake, the inhabitants of a small village were very much alarmed. One old, older lady, whom they all knew, was surprisingly calm and joyous. And one of them asked her, Mother, are you afraid? I love her answer. No, she replied. I rejoice that I have a God who can shake the world. He protects us by, rec by recognizing God's protection. So, holy confidence. God is around me. He's protecting me. I don't know what anxieties, what fears you may or may not have. It may be relational. It may have to do with your health. It may be financial. It may be just family. But God, God protects us. God is all around us. He's everywhere present at the same time. An American missionary and his wife bravely went to their station where 20 years before two missionaries had been killed and eaten by the natives. They said as they took up their work, it seemed as if, it, if, if, as if often they were surrounded not only by the hostile natives, but by the very power, powers of darkness itself. These latter were so real that night after night they were forced to get up, strengthen their hearts by reading the word of God. Again, they would pray. One day a man came and said, I would like to see your watchman close at hand. The missionary replied, I have no watchman. I have only a cook and a little herd boy. What watchman do you mean? 
the man asked permission to look through the missionary's home. Every corner of the house was carefully searched, and the man came out of the house greatly disappointed. Then the missionary asked the man to tell him what the watchman to whom he referred. Here's the man's answer. When you and your wife came here, we determined to kill you as we did the missionaries 20 years ago. Night after night, we came to carry out our intentions, but there were always stood around your home a double row of watchmen with glittering weapons, and we dared not come near. At last, we hired a professional assassin who said he feared neither God nor devil. Last night, he came close to your house. We followed at a distance, brandishing our spears. There stood the shining watchman, and the killer fled in terror. So we have given up our purpose to kill you. But tell me, who are the watchmen? The missionary opened the word of God and read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 12. The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in the safety by him. Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 26. The Lord hid them. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble by recognizing God's protection. How can I have a holy confidence? Because God is all around me. Secondly, verses 4 to 7, by rejoicing in God's presence. Now, again, I could have used this for the last part, because you'll see these interchangeable, but nonetheless, I think the focus and emphasis here is on the aspect of his presence, by rejoicing in God's presence, verses 4 to 7. I'm going to point out several things here. His presence, verse 4, is pleasing. He says, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. River is an emblem of abundance. Streams are, this is irrigation or water that's taken off the river to irrigate the, the fields of, uh, that they've planted. Make glad, that's joy, that's delight, that's refreshing, it's growth, it's life. The city of God, specifically have reference to Jerusalem and probably the new Jerusalem, that faithful city. It's cool, it's clear, it's refreshing, it's abundant. It made me think of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. How to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or even think, according to the power that works in us. See, his presence is pleasing. It's an unfailing supply. But it's also an indwelling supply. He says, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. That holy place is the Holy of Holies. As you know, the tabernacle is divided into two compartments. And as you pass by the burning altar where you would put your sacrifice, and you come to the labor where you wash your hands in preparation to enter the tabernacle, and you enter into the tabernacle, here's the holy place. On your right is the table of showbread. On your left is the candlesticks. And right in front of you is the altar of incense. And then you have hanging there the, the uh, uh, veil that is hung between the two compartments. And as you enter behind the veil, you enter into the Holy of Holies. See, it's not just an unfailing supply, it's an indwelling supply. And what's unique and special about this Holy of Holies, there is no light. There is no window. There is no skylight. This is where the glory of God dwells. 
The walls, yes, they're plated with gold over the, over the planks that are uh, stood upright. You have in the center of that room the Ark of the Covenant covered by the mercy seat, which is also gold. And so you have the glory of God within this room shining in its so brightness, it brightness itself that often is told that the priests would come out and the veil would have to be over their face because they would, they would reflect that which they were in the, when they were, had been in the presence of God himself. It's not just an unfailing supply, it's an indwelling supply. As we look at God's presence, it's pleasing. It's personal, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. God shall help her. It's personal. He's not some abstract out here to the 20th degree of trying to figure out what it's all about. He's very personal. It's to you, it's to me. It's all God, his sovereign plan, his sovereign will. God is in the midst of her. God shall help her. Also in verse 5, it's permanent. She shall not be moved. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? It's permanent. She shall not be moved. Speaking of the city itself, what the bottom line is, his presence is permanent. As it says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, For you, speaking of you, you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you, have, you who have repented of your sins, you confess them, and you've embraced Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. He's speaking to you. He said, do you not know that you are the temple of God? In other words, you are the inner chamber. You have become the Holy of Holies because the, the tabernacle and the necessity of the tabernacle has been done away with the cross because Christ fulfilled the demands of the tabernacle uh, and the Levitical service itself of the continual sacrifices. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He died once, and he rose again from the dead. He's in our midst. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? He dwells in us. He, it, is permanent. it is personal. It's permanent. But also it's prompt. Notice in verse 5, just at the break of dawn, just when you need it most. It doesn't mean he's not all the time present, but it seems like he's not. But just when you need him the most. Because, you see, he'll never allow us to be tempted or tried beyond our ability, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But he always provides a way of escape. Why is that? Because he's faithful. See, his presence is prompt. It's never late. It's always, it's always on time. And lastly, in verse 6, and I alluded to this in the Scripture reading because it just struck me. It's profound. He says, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. And the earth melted. That's phenomenal. The earth melted. There was uproar. There was unrest. And he just speaks. Whether it be the forces of nature, the forces of nations, they're no longer a threat to God's people. Whether it be the forces of sin or the forces of Satan, they're no longer a threat to God's people. 
Because through his son, he's delivered us from the penalty of death. And through his spirit, he empowers, he indwells us to overcome Satan, temptation, and sin. It's profound. His presence, by rejoicing in God's presence. Holy confidence, God is in me. See, God's not just around me, but God is in me. For us as believers, it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's in me. Many years ago, in southern England, the clergyman of an Anglican church happened to be looking out through his parsonage window when he saw a rather rough-looking workman stroll past the main door to the church, where he paused before entering the church. The next day, the clergyman noticed the same thing, and again a couple days later, always about the same time, 30 minutes past noon. His suspicions became aroused, so he sent the church caretaker to spy. This is what the caretaker reported. The man entered, stuffed his hat in his jacket pocket, walked down the center aisle to the rail before the communion table. There with bowed head, he stood in silence. Then putting his hands on the rail, looking over toward the communion table, he said in a low voice, Jesus, it's Jim. Some days later, there was a nasty accident in town, and Jim was carried to the local hospital. He was put in a men's ward, which was filled at that time with the roughest mixture of men ever admitted. Such was their coarse, rude, and crude ungratefulness that more than one of the nurses had shed tears while carrying out her duties. However, when Jim had been there a few days, there was a marked change, and after two or three days more, it was such that the nurses could not conceal their happy surprise. One morning, just as the head nurse began to make her round of the beds, the men were all enjoying a good-natured laugh at something. She could not help but asking the first man what it was that made such a change in all of them. He replied, Oh, it's that chim, that chap over in the fifth bed. They call him Jim. So when the screen was around Jim's bed, she said to him, Jim, you have made a wonderful change in this ward. Tell me how you've done it. With tear glistening in his eyes, Jim replied, Well, I'm not sure that you would understand if I told you. But somehow, every day, just about 1230, I see Jesus coming toward the end of my bed. He stands there for a minute. Then he just puts his hands in the bed rail, leans over and says, Jim, it's Jesus. A holy confidence because God is in me. He is around me. And finally, look at verses 48. By resting in God's power. Notice in verse 8 the invitation come, behold the works of the Lord. God, listen to me, God will not and cannot be ignored. Individuals may say, I don't believe in God. Or they may hear our believer or Christian say, well, that's a God thing. But God cannot and will not be ignored. Even in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, as Paul's writing, man's conscience won't allow it. 
who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. He's talking about the unsaved. See, God cannot, he will not be ignored. Come, behold, not just see, not just a glance, but an examining under the microscope look. Because listen to me, God cannot be ignored. You may even be trying, as a believer, trying to ignore God and his hand and his work. God cannot and will not be ignored. He will get your attention one way or another. So just come. Behold. His invitation is open. His invitation, if you're here this morning and don't know Christ as your Savior, his invitation is open to you to salvation. Come and behold. He has a free gift for you. It's called eternal life. Notice also in verse 8, the annihilation. Remember, God will not and cannot be ignored. Who has made desolation in the earth? That means to lay waste. One of the, th- the things that the Assyrians, the, the conquered the land, were known for, that they would not only displace all the people, but they would take the ground and usually churn it up, and then they would spread salt throughout the land so it could not be planted to raise any crops. That's desolation. Interestingly enough, God laid waste Assyria. He laid waste Babylon. He laid waste Petra. But Jerusalem survives even to this day. By resting in God's power, the annihilation... Joseph Hall commented concerning God has made desolation in the earth. He said, whatever may may have been the instrument of desolation, God was always the author. Verse 9, we saw the invitation, the annihilation. Verse 9, the termination. He made wars cease. He breaks the bow. He burns the chariot. He causes war to cease in two ways, either reconciliation or, in this case, destruction. Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. He will not, he cannot be ignored by resting in God's power. And verse 10, if there is a favorite verse I have in this chapter, it would be verse 10. The relaxation. Okay. Just be still. That's a rubber band that is pulled to its tension to its very tight and just put back in place. It's a rope, a tow rope that's pulled to its absolute maximum without breaking and then, then backed off. Be still. It makes me think of that story of Elijah when he was running from Jezebel and he finally got to the mountaintop where God wanted him to go and there was a tornado basically whirling and wind that came by but God wasn't in the tornado there was a horrific rainstorm and lightning and thundering that came by but God wasn't in the horrific thunderstorm and then God came in a still small voice and Elijah listened be still and know, witness, experience his power over nature, over nations, over sin, over death. He will not, he cannot be ignored. 
by resting in God's power. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Many of you know the songwriter Ira Sankey. It was Christmas Eve, 1875, when Ira Sankey was traveling on a Delaware River steamboat when he was recognized with some of the passengers. His picture had been in the paper because he was a song leader for the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. They asked him to sing one of his new hymns that he had written, but Sankey, Sankey demurred, saying that if he preferred to sing William B. Bradley's hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. As he sang, one of the stanzas began, We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. When he finished, a man stepped from the shadows and asked, Did you ever serve in the Union Army? Yes, Sankey said. I joined up in the spring of 1860. Can you remember if you were doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night in 1862? Yes, he answered, very much surprised. So did I, but I was serving in the Confederate Army. When I saw you standing at your post, I thought to myself, that fellow will never make it out alive. I raised my musket, I took aim, I was standing in the shadows, completely concealed, while the full light of the moon was falling upon you. At that instant, you raised your eyes to heaven, and you began to sing. I thought to myself, I'll just let him sing to the end, and then I'll shoot him. But the song you sang then was the song you sang just now. I heard the words perfectly. We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. Those words stirred my memories. I began to think of my childhood and my God-fearing mother. She had many times sung that song to me. When you had finished your song, it was impossible for me to take aim again. I thought, the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. My arm of its own accord dropped limp at my side. We can have a holy confidence because God is with us. He's around us, he's in us, and he's with us. I'll just pause for a moment and think about that. God is around me. God is in me. God is with me. He cannot and he will not be ignored. Let's talk, take a moment here of silent prayer before I pray. Father, as we come before you. And Lord, we, I don't know the burdens many times that individuals carry, but you do. Whether they've shared them with you or not, you know. Because you're around us, you're in us, and you're with us. I don't know what fears they may have, what anxieties 
they may be facing or considering. But we can have a holy confidence in a remarkable, incredible God. We, Lord, we know that these things many times don't stop our fears. But yet, you cannot be ignored. You will not be ignored. And you draw us to you. Help us to keep our gaze upon you. Your presence, your protection, and your power itself. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning, and you say, Pastor Ken, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never accepted Christ as my personal Savior. I'm not saved. But I'd like someone to show me from the Word of God how I can be saved. Is there anyone like that? Secondly, you say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. This is the second part of the invitation. Just pray for me that I will keep God before me, his protective hand, his continued power, realizing his presence is ever there, always there. Is there anyone like that? Any others? Father, we come to you. We, we seek to come to you humbly, even as the sons of Korah, as they sang, to sing, to come, with, come before you with praise because of who you are, not just what you've done. We, become, we come together before you with thanksgiving, with adoration, with appreciation for your mercy and your grace that you extend to us. Oh God, I pray that we will never take these things for granted, but we truly will be thankful and, thank, and continue to give thanksgiving for all you've done and all you will do because of who you are. You're around us, you're in us, and you're with us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.